Well, you can turn to Luke chapter 6. We are continuing our study through the gospel of Luke chapter by chapter. And, and if you weren't with us last week, uh, we were in the beginning section of this chapter where we saw Jesus with the disciples getting criticized for the way that they uh, were going about on Sabbath. They're, they're eating on the Sabbath and and the Pharisees think they're breaking all of these laws and they're, they're not following their, their oral tradition of how Sabbath was to be carried out, right? They're gathering this grain, they're rubbing it in their hands, they're eating it and having a meal. And to the Pharisees, that was breaking the Sabbath. It was work on a day of rest. And we took time to look at God's intention within Sabbath, that it was meant to be a day of delight, a, a day that we stopped working, but it was a day made for man. And that man wasn't made for the Sabbath. And Jesus went on in the synagogue to heal a man, to fully restore his withered hand. And where that man would leave changed forever and be able to do things he never could before, the Pharisees leave enraged and filled with a plan to figure out how they can stop this Jesus by any means necessary. And it's in that context of Jesus beginning to stir the pot with the Pharisees And this enemy that is beginning to unify and strategize how to stop him that we come to our text this morning in verse 12, which is here, here's what we read. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them, he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. Simon, who he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Would you join me as we open in a word of prayer this morning? God, as we come before your word this morning, even in such a small section that just gives us a list of men, because your word is so living and active and powerful, there's a message in it. God, I pray that we would always approach your word humbly and hungry, that we would submit to it as truth, as the final authority for what is true, and we'd also come eagerly desiring to learn from it, to feed on it that it would show us how we are to live, that it would show us more about your character and the way that you operate because it's so different than the way we operate. God, I pray for each and every person here, no matter what they're coming in with, that as we sit before your word, they would leave with something they needed, a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation, a challenge, an insight, that each one of us could leave here, Lord, better than we came in this morning. And that would impact the way we live and serve for your glory. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, if you're taking notes and you want to put down a title this morning, you can write this down, the dream team. The dream team. That's what we're looking at in Luke chapter 6. And before we talk all about the dream team, what I want to put in your mind is is this question for you to be thinking about, which is the task at hand 
and the people Jesus chose. So Jesus is on earth to bring the message of hope and life and a new covenant relationship with him, which makes everything different. And on this mission, he's going to establish a team, a team of men that he will raise up and prepare, and then he will leave and they will carry on his mission. And in this mission, they are going to go and spread this message throughout the known world at that time. They will face opposition of all kinds, physical opposition. They will be beaten, they will be killed, they will be tortured for this message. They will also be challenged intellectually by others who will try and muddy the gospel or challenge the gospel and question Jesus' authority. And they have to be men that are willing to go and continue to go and, and overcome obstacles. They have to be resilient men. And I want you to be thinking in your head, if you were given that task, the most important message that has ever been given and you have to put together a team of a dozen men that are going to carry that on throughout the known world in an effective way and then build the church around it, what kind of men would you pick? Maybe it's people you already know. Some of these people that any room they, they step into, it's changed for the better. Men that are already carrying this mission across seas and it just doesn't seem like anything can stop them. Well, I don't, I don't know who those 12 people would be for you. Maybe they're famous pastors or, or famous evangelists. Maybe they're not even involved in Christian ministry currently, but you see potential there, and you know that's someone that could be redeemed in some way. Maybe they're a nobody, but you've seen their integrity behind closed doors. But here's what I'm willing to bet, that if you and I were to take the 12 people we would choose and line them up against the 12 people Jesus chose, there would be very little that those two lists had in common. Now, I mentioned it already. His ways are not our ways. But one of the most obvious times we see that in Scripture is in the men that Jesus chose to carry on his mission. Now, I use the title, The Dream Team. And when you first read the description of these men and what they were known for, that seems like the furthest thing from how we would describe this team. And yet we'll see how God can work in ordinary men to do extraordinary things. But I chose that title because it's a title already given to a group. And if you're a basketball fan, you knew this already, right? We can pull up that image there of the 1992 United States Olympic basketball team. The first time that... The professional basketball players in the NBA were allowed to join the Olympic team and play to represent Team USA. That team had been described by journalists around the world as the greatest sports team ever assembled. This is a stacked team. And if you don't believe me, when you look at the details around those Olympic games, they defeated every single opponent they faced by an average of 44 points. Okay, that's a blowout, and that's the average between all the games. It was really a nonstop highlight reel of alley-oops and dunks and, and just the, the greatest show you've ever watched, but it was by no means a competition. They just swept the floor of every other team. And it makes sense if you know basketball and you see some of the people on that team. You've got Scottie Pippen, you've got Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, 
Patrick Ewing, and many others. This was the best of the best of the best in NBA, all brought together in one stacked team that nobody could stop. In fact, Sports Illustrated later stated that the Dream Team was the most dominant squad ever assembled in any sport. I mean, it was just no competition. And we see all-star games all the time, but this team stacked up against every other team in the Olympics. It wasn't a competition. They just continued to beat and overcome every single other team. And when you line up a squad like that with the disciples, it's, it's almost comical, right? We, when we look at the disciples, we don't see a dream team of the most elite players in history. We don't see a team of the most eloquent speakers and, and the, the deepest thinkers and the greatest orators. You don't see any of that. You see a bunch of, a bunch of guys that no other rabbi wanted and They're out just kind of fishing and figuring it out. One's a tax collector. There's a zealot over here. I mean, this group seems like the last people you would be choosing, right? This isn't the dream team. This is like the trust the process team, right? When people begin to go, are you sure you want to just trust the process, all right? There's a lot of development, but we see potential. It's the team that at least they're having fun, right? I'm helping coach my son's t-ball team right now, and that's kind of our motto, right? They're having fun. A kid will hit a ball in the infield, and one of them will run and get it, but before he can throw it to first base, four of his teammates have tackled him because they want to throw the ball to first base. We're like, guys, this is not how the game works, but, but you're having fun. That's great, you know? This is by no means an elite team that are put together and expected to do nothing but win. You know, when I was playing Babe Ruth baseball, I was on a team, the Pirates. We were a lot like the Disciples if they were a baseball team, okay? Um, In our entire year, our whole baseball season, we won a total of one game. Mother's Day, I'll never forget it, because the only reason we won that game is because the other team didn't have enough players show up, so they had to forfeit. (laughs) Hey, you know what? We said it doesn't matter if it's by an inch or a mile or a disqualification. A win is a win. So what did we do? We ran those bases, and we all dove and slid headfirst at home plate, and we celebrated because we finally won a game. That's the disciples, okay? Not, not elite athletes, not the most gifted and talented men. These are the guys that would ride the bench, that would never get any play time unless you're up by so much that you're not worried about them losing the ball a bunch and throwing a couple air balls up. And yet in all of that, when we understand the kind of men these were, it's incredible that what we realize is that Jesus didn't choose them flippantly. He wasn't just like, I need 12 volunteers, and these are the first ones to raise their hand. We read that he goes and spends all night praying and then specifically chooses these 12 by name amongst all the followers that are there. That's because there's a different kind of team. And it's not a team of the best of the best, but a team that involves the most unlikely of heroes that come together under a common cause and are used in an incredible way. And as much as we want to criticize this group or even just laugh it off as a fluke, 
We crave this kind of team, don't we? I mean, movies for decades have been made around this kind of team. A team of, of people who don't typically get along, that don't look alike, that are put together to accomplish something incredible, right? You've got Star Wars with a Wookiee and a droid, a Jedi, all coming together for the sake of the Force. They've got a smuggler in there, but you know what? He's going to become the greatest pilot with the fastest ship. And they don't always get along, and they hardly ever see eye to eye, and there's always this conflict within them, but they're coming together for a greater cause. Or how about this one? The Lord of the Rings, where we're putting together a wizard and a a hobbit and a man and an elf and a dwarf all to accomplish this task of destroying a ring, and they don't get along, and they disagree about the best strategy and method, and, but they continue to work together and be unified and, and accomplish their task. I've got one more for you. How about this team, right, the Avengers? I mean, we love these kind of teams. We crave them. Where it seems sloppy at times, and like they're not the most qualified, they're not the, the team with the greatest weapons or the greatest strategy, and, and most of the time it seems like they just kind of fall into success, they don't even plan for it, and they're constantly modifying their plans, and things aren't going according to their structure. But this is the way God's designed us as people to live, and it makes sense why we crave a team like this. You see, the church was never meant to be like a big business that looks for the most talented and gifted and productive people to hire, where you just look all around the world and you find the most gifted and elite players of each team and you say, we're going to put them all together and have this dream team church where we have all the best people in every category. Now, the church is meant to be a place where leaders are made from within, not sought from without. Jesus doesn't travel all around from city to city saying, no, I need that most elite guy. And then he finds him, oh, you're a part of the team, right? That's how we see in the movies they pick the most elite team. They go to these different areas, but they find that one guy that stands out. Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, if these 12 stood out amongst all the disciples, it was probably for negative reasons, not for positive ones. He grabs the works in progress, the rough around the edges, the skeptical and doubters, the zealous problem makers, the ones that have a temper or the timid guy that always runs when things go bad. And these are the guys that Jesus will develop and transform to be his dream team. And he starts this process in the only way that makes sense when you realize the work he's got ahead of him. He starts by going up on the mountain to be alone with the Father for the entire night in prayer. And when you begin to think about the responsibility on his shoulders, the mission ahead, and the men he's going to use, you're like, was one night enough? He goes before the Father in prayer. And Luke's gospel in particular, we've said this before, makes it a point to continually show you time and time again that Jesus was a man of prayer. 
men who saw the things that were coming and understood the will of the Father and had a plan in place but still consistently went to the Father, was alone with Him in prayer. And prayer is not just a means of connecting to the mind of God because we want answers. This wasn't just Jesus going to the Father and saying, okay, give me a list of the 12 guys. All right, thank you. I'll see you later. And He goes down the mountain to pick them out. It was more than that. It's more than just connecting to the mind of God. Prayer is a means of receiving from the heart of God. Right? Even this morning in our time of prayer before service, we were looking at Jesus' priestly prayer as he prays for the disciples and also is praying for those who would come after them. And he's praying that they would be of, of one mind and one heart as he is one with the Father. I believe this was more than just Jesus going to the Father to get information about which 12 to pick. Now this is about receiving from the heart of the Father and praying for the protection of these men and, and the wisdom of these men and the discernment of these men and covering these men in prayer before they even knew the plan God had for them. And there's some interesting things about this list that Luke gives us that we're going to look at before we dive into the specifics of each men. Now, there are four times that this list of these apostles is given. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then Acts. Four times it's mentioned. And in all these lists, Peter is always first, and Judas Iscariot is always last. When James and John are listed in every single one of those lists, we see James come first and then John, and we assume that's because James is the older brother of John, and so he would be given that prominent place to be listed first. He chose 12 disciples, which is fitting because in the Old Testament there were 12 tribes of Israel that were called by God. And just as Moses went up on a mountaintop and received instruction from the Lord that came back in the form of these Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, Jesus goes up onto the mountaintop, and when he comes down, he chooses his 12, and then he goes on to preach the greatest sermon that's ever been preached of a new way of living and a new kind of instruction for his people that wasn't just about rules to follow, but how we follow this new way of living in relationship with God as his representatives. And we're told that when he comes down from the mountain, having spent the entire night in prayer, that he calls the disciples to himself. Because the mission he's calling them to is more than just about the things they will do. It's about who they're doing it with. He doesn't say, I'm calling you to a big mission, but I'm calling you to a man first and foremost. I'm calling you to myself. And any effectiveness that we hope to have in bringing the gospel to this world it's going to stem from our time spent with him. So he calls us to the same thing today. He calls us first to himself. And then out of the overflow of that time with him as he fills us, then we can go and be poured out for him. We abide in the vine that we might bear much fruit because apart from him we can do nothing. So first and foremost, he calls them to himself. It says he calls his disciples. And if you didn't grow up in church, that's not a common word used in our culture, a disciple. A disciple is simply a learner. It's a student. It's a follower. We might use a word like an apprentice, someone who, who follows 
the person they're learning from, and they learn how to do the job, and they're given opportunities to put it into practice. But these were disciples of a rabbi, men who would align themselves with this teacher, and they would try and imitate his every move. In fact, it says that they would walk and try and imitate even his walking. They would want to imitate the way he taught the scriptures. They would adopt his viewpoint on them and his interpretation of them. They became like their rabbi. So when you looked at disciples, you could see the rabbi. And we don't know the exact number of disciples he has at this point. Obviously, it's more than the dozen that are chosen here to be apostles. But he's looking around at this group. Now, traditionally, what would happen is that the student would actually choose the rabbi. They would find the rabbi they desired to learn under. They would see him as, oh, man, that's the one I want to follow. But here it's interesting. We see the flip happening, that Jesus is actually choosing those who would follow him. Now, there are many that would follow Jesus, but these 12 would be apostles. They would get a deeper insight and relationship with Jesus with special instructions for their lives and a plan. But they didn't choose Jesus. In fact, we've already looked at some of them, like Matthew, who's content working as a tax collector in his booth when Jesus walks along and says, hey, you, follow me. And he just leaves it all and follows Jesus. It's the same for us today. Jesus says in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. He chose us and appointed us like Saul on the road to Damascus who would become Paul who wasn't looking to follow Jesus. In fact, he was actively looking for followers of Jesus so that he could beat them and put them in prison and put a stop to these followers of the way. But Jesus chose him. And Jesus knocked him off his high horse, literally, and said, why are you persecuting me? No, no, I'm choosing you. I've got a plan for you. And you need to go into the city and you need to wait because then I'm going to bring Ananias and he's going to come and tell you all the things you're going to do and how you will suffer for my name's sake. He chose him. And he's chosen us as well. You know, when I finished Bible college, I got the opportunity to be a part of a pastoral internship for a year. Was it because I applied for it? No. Was it because I thought I should be there? No, absolutely not. It's because the leader of that program called me in his office and said, I want you to be a part of this. He's like, I didn't even know this was a thing. He's like, well, it's because it's not something I have an application for. It's not something people can come and ask to be a part of. I choose a team of people to be a part of it. And I thought, well, that's awesome, but I think you mixed me up with someone if you want me to be a part of a pastoral internship because I'm not a pastor and I don't even know if that's what the Lord's calling me to do. But he pushed and he encouraged, and so I submitted and stayed for a year, and I see the Lord's hand in that now. But I didn't choose it. No, the Lord chose it. Called. And it's important that you realize today that we are not so different from these disciples. That he chose you. And as much as you sit in Scripture and you question the 12 that he chose, especially when we start to look at some of their flaws, Realize that he chooses you just the same. Not because he's ignorant to each and every one of your flaws and your shortcomings. 
Not because he's unaware of your rap sheet and everything that happened before you came to where you are today. He's fully aware of it. He sees it all, and he chose you anyway. And he wants to use you even in spite of that. Sometimes he wants to use you because of that. Because he has a plan to redeem that and to use you as an example to others. 1 Peter 2.9 says that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, that's what he did with the disciples. That's what he's still doing today. He's choosing people and calling them out of darkness into marvelous light, calling them out of a life of destruction, a life of living for yourself where there is no lasting fulfillment or peace, and calling you into a relationship with him on a new path of life and light and truth that redeems it and renews your mind and transforms you from the inside out. But these 12 are uniquely chosen to be apostles. And I'm willing to bet if you didn't know what a disciple was, an apostle is even more confusing. The idea behind the Greek word for an apostle is basically just an ambassador. It means someone who is sent out with a a message that they are bringing and representing another. It describes someone being sent with a purpose and a plan. In the broader sense, in fact, even Jesus was an apostle, according to Hebrews 3, where it says, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, who came to this world to bring a new way, a new message representing the Father. And in the ancient world, an apostle was a personal representative of the king, functioning as the ambassador and and carrying with him the king's authority provided with the message he wanted him to bring. Sometimes a message of peace, sometimes a message of war, sometimes a message of the king's favor, and sometimes a message of the king's judgment upon a group or an individual. But they carried this message and with it the authority of the king, often with a ring that represented his seal. Well, you and I, when we were called by God and saved, have been given his seal, and it's the Holy Spirit. And then we've been sent out as his ambassadors, as his apostles, with a message from the king, a message that we have the authority of the word of God to back up, and a message that truly is peace for some and war for others. It's hope and life for some and destruction and coming doom for others. But we bring the message and people choose how they will respond to it. But he calls these 12, and now we're given the list, which, we get, which begins with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, if you know the Bible very well, if you're familiar with New Testament stories of the apostles, then there's one within that group that should stick out like a sore thumb. And that's Andrew. And you're like, well, why Andrew? Well, because you will commonly read as you go throughout the Gospels that Jesus calls three of these apostles, right? We've gone from a group of disciples to 12 apostles, but then there's this special three. Not the three musketeers. They're a lot more like the three stooges. But Jesus calls these three 
to an even deeper relationship with him. They're given special insight and relationship to Jesus as your closest friends would get. And those three are Peter, James, and John. But Andrew, he's not in that group of three. Now, he's paired together here because we've got two sets of brothers. But time and time again in the Scripture, you will hear about Peter, James, and John this, Peter, James, and John that, and Peter, James, and John were taken here. But you don't read about Andrew. But you know what Andrew's significant for? Andrew is the one that brought Peter to Christ. In John chapter 1, verses 40 and 41, it says, One of the two heard John speak, and following him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. You see, Andrew doesn't get to be a part of the the fantastic three that are always with Jesus and get these special insights into these moments But Andrew's the one that brings Peter to Christ. And you realize even in this church, today in our world, we need Andrews and we could say Annies, right? We need these guys and girls, these men and women in the church, willing to reach out to those closest to them with the gospel. It started with Andrew and he went straight to his brother. Maybe you've come to Christ and it starts in your home with your family, around you. And Andrew didn't need to be one of the three, but he was faithfully being used to draw one of those three. Like Edward Kimball, the one that brought D.L. Moody to Christ. And then Moody, who brought Wilbur Chapman to Christ. And then Wilbur Chapman, who brought a professional baseball player, Billy Sunday, to Christ. And then it was Billy Sunday's preaching that brought Mordecai Ham to Christ. And Mordecai Ham who preached. And there was a young man who only came that night to the service because he heard some of his friends were going to disrupt it. And he wanted to go and watch the fun. But that young man would come to Christ that night, Billy Graham. A name most of us are familiar with because... He's probably the greatest evangelist who's ever lived and has preached the gospel to an estimated 2.2 billion people. And we all know the names of Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. But how many of us are ready and willing and even open and desiring to be a Kimball, a Chapman, or a Ham? that maybe won't go down in history as one of the greatest evangelists or preachers or prayer warriors of their day, but as a faithful saint of Christ who was willing to bring that person to Christ. Andrew didn't get to be one of the three. He got to be one of the 12, though. And he was faithful to bring to Christ one who would be one of the three. Don't despise being an Andrew. God just might be using you to reach the masses of this generation through reaching one other person he will use in a mighty way to do that. And it starts with one person, one person that you're willing to invest in a relationship with and not a bait and switch that says, I care about you, now come to church. Oh, you're not going to church? Well, then I'll go care about someone else. But someone who says, man, I'm willing to go through life with you and be in a real relationship with you. I'm committed to you. And when you're in need and 
and, and you're going through a difficult time, I'm going to be there. And even if you never step foot in the church, I'm not going anywhere that is committing to loving these people well. Well, that's Andrew, but what about these other three, Peter, James, and John? They were the only ones present as Jesus would go up on a hill and be transfigured before them. They're the only three present when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And both times he tells them, hey, I don't want you going and telling everybody what happened here. This was just for you three. They're the three that are allowed to go deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane with him. While the others are off sleeping, these three are brought in and, and given a task that they would continue to pray for Jesus as he went before the Father. You're like, man, these three must have been elite. Well, no. They're brought up on that Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter can't keep his mouth shut. He's like, oh, it's good that we're here. We should build something for you like an altar. We should do something right now. And God says, hey, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The nicest way in Scripture that God ever said, shut up. Peter, stop it. I didn't bring you up here to do something. Just sit and behold my son. What about in the garden when they're brought into this deeper place and they're given a special task of praying alongside Jesus as he's about to go to the cross and Jesus comes back and they are out cold sleeping. So he wakes them up. Well, surely they woke up this time and they got it together. No, he comes back and he finds them sleeping again and again. And well, surely though, these are the three that are the bravest and the toughest and they're going to be the three that as people come to take Jesus, they're going to be men of faith and men of confidence that Jesus has a plan. No, Peter's running around swinging a sword and chops a guy's ear off. Okay, so next time you think, God can't use me, I've made some mistakes. I don't think you've cut off anybody's ear today. I think you're doing pretty okay. But these three would be used in an incredible way. Peter would be the leader of the church that would be established on the day of Pentecost. And though there would be times he would run away with his tail between his legs, on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Spirit, he goes out and he boldly proclaims that gospel unashamedly, and thousands are brought into the kingdom. James would be a prominent leader in the church, and he would be the first of these 12 that would be martyred for his faith. John, another prominent leader in the early church and the disciple who he loves to coin the term whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, and the last living among the 12, banished to the island of Patmos where he would write Revelation. These men were used in incredible ways, but not because they were incredible men. They blew it time and time again. Peter would deny Jesus three times, and one time he would be guilty of rebuking Jesus and trying to tell him a better plan moving forward, and he would be called Satan, okay? James and John would get the nickname the Sons of Thunder, and it sounds really tough, but I'm sure it was a slight little dig at the fact that they wanted to call down fire and brimstone on a group. Jesus, let's just wipe them out. Give us the ability. We will just crush these guys. We'll smoke them right now. Just give us the power. Just like, okay, sons of thunder. Yeah, tough guys, get over here. Oh, and you want to use your mom to be the greatest? That's cute. You tough guys. 
But these people, flawed and imperfect, impulsive and prideful, yet friends of God, specifically chosen by Jesus. Do you ever struggle wondering if God really wants to use you because your mouth is too big, because your faith is too small? You think he can't handle your pride or your failures? You think you're disqualified because of impulsiveness or a lack of prayer? Lucas, I haven't even memorized a handful of verses. I couldn't even quote a single verse. Take heart because his closest friends failed him. His closest friends missed the point at times. His closest friends even abandoned him at his time of need. And his closest friends, if we're looking for the most qualified people, were anything but that. But these are the people Jesus handpicked to be a part of his team. Your usefulness to God is not dependent on a good resume. And thanks be to God for that, because I'll tell you what, I'll be the first to represent. It's a very short resume that I'm not very proud of. Your usefulness to God is dependent on your ability to humble yourself, to pick up your cross, and to keep following him through the mistakes. You're going to fail, but fail forward. And humble yourself and get back up and keep following him. Because that's what we see in the disciples. Do you know what separates Judas from the rest of them? Not that they were all way better than Judas. They got back up. They kept following Christ. And in a moment of shame over sin, you've got Peter, who in that guilt of his sin, though, repents and is brought back to Christ. And you've got Judas, who allows his sin to condemn him, and his guilt runs away to take his own life. We've got Philip and Bartholomew here. Philip was the one in John 145 who came and told Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel in some of the other accounts, that we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And do you know what Nathaniel or Bartholomew Do you know his responses to that? Not, all right, I am in and I'm ready to be a part of this team. Show me where I sign. His response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Whoa, 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 whoa. You're getting way ahead of yourself here, buddy. He came from where? Nazareth? No, that's definitely not him. I don't know where he's going to come from, but not from that little podunk town where nothing good comes from it. That's where dreams go to die. That's not where the Messiah's coming from. Not known as a man of great faith. But I bet he's feeling a little better than the next two we read about, Matthew and Thomas. This is like the, a starting to a very bad joke, right? A tax collector and a, and a doubter walk into a synagogue and you're like, where's the punchline, right? We looked at Matthew a few weeks back. A man despised by the people because he has abandoned his Jewish people and has aligned himself with the Romans. A man in his culture that as a tax collector was in a class with murderers and robbers, unable to testify in court and unwelcomed in the synagogue. And he's paired with Thomas. 
Doubting Thomas. What do you go down in history for? Oh, the time I doubted Jesus. My lack of faith. In fact, everybody for years and centuries to come will warn people not to be a doubting Thomas. Yeah, that's how I go down in history. A man in Scripture we see as being a bit of a Debbie Downer. He always saw the dark and negative side of things. He's the one when Jesus is going to return to Lazarus' tomb, and the disciples are trying to discourage him, knowing that, man, there are people there that want you to be stoned, Jesus. We shouldn't go back there. It's dangerous. And Thomas is willing to go back with him, but not in a bright and bold way that says, no, Jesus will protect us. He has a plan. Here's what he says. Let us also go that we may die with him. Thanks, Thomas. That word of encouragement, that ray of sunshine, that wasn't coming from Thomas. He's a doubter. He's skeptical. We're just going to go die with him. Let's just go and get it over with. Every church has them, the Eeyores. You're celebrating something, and they're the person that goes, yeah, but you can keep your butt out of this, okay? We want positivity. We want faith. Now, Thomas was chosen as one of these 12, even in spite of his often sad and dark countenance. Handpicked, called by God. Then we read of James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot. Do you know what I love about James, the son of Alphaeus? We know absolutely nothing about James, the son of Alphaeus, except for that his name is James and his dad is Alphaeus. That's it. In all of Scripture, you know his name and you know his dad's name and you know nothing else. Not one detail of significance is mentioned about him. Not one thing he did, not one place he went. We've got a name. He wouldn't make the Hall of Fame. He wouldn't make the Guinness Book of World Records. Heck, he probably wouldn't even make the church directory. He's the guy that's like, I think his name is James. I don't really remember. He just kind of was there. I don't know. But you know what book he is in? He's in the Lamb's Book of Life. We may know nothing about him. We may look at him and say, if I'm picking the most elite 12 to go on mission for God, I'm not choosing the guy that we've got nothing to write about. What's his resume? It's his name and his dad's name. You're like, this, I, I don't know how to work with this. What are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? Give me something. We've got nothing, but Jesus picked him. Don't let your limitation, or rather your reputation, limit your expectation. What kind of reputation does he have? We have no idea. He was following Jesus, and he was picked by Jesus. But that doesn't limit what God is going to use him to do. Well, what did God use him to do? We don't know. But we know God used him because God doesn't waste people. And every person is made in the image of God, right? Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. And that's each and every one of us. We don't need to know what he did. We know that God chose him. We know that God used him. And we can glorify God because of him. Don't let your reputation limit your expectation. 
Lucas, I've done nothing. I'm a nobody from nowhere. God can use you in incredible ways to be a somebody that does something somewhere. And even if it's never spoken about or written about, God sees, God knows, and God would choose you all the same. We need more nobodies in the church. People that don't need their name in bright lights. People that don't need to be remembered for centuries to come. People that are willing to say, look, like John the Baptist, I just need a decrease and he needs to increase. I just want it to be more about him and less about me. So if all people know is, I know his name, that's all I know. That's okay with me because God knows me and he sees me and he's called me. And then we're given Simon the Zealot, a religious, political activist to the max, a part of a group that vowed to assassinate any Roman hierarchy if they were ever given the opportunity. And I just want you to picture the interactions between Matthew and Simon, the man who betrayed his people and aligned himself with the Roman government and taxed his people heavily for his own profit and gain. And then Simon the Zealot, it's like, if I just get in the room with any kind of Roman official, man, I am killing them on the spot. I will do anything and everything to overthrow this government, even if it's by extremely violent and aggressive means. And then Jesus calls these 12 to himself and the other disciples are going, oh, snap. Jesus, you need, you need to call one of these guys to take a step away and pick somebody else because these two can't work together. But I love that that's the way God's kingdom works. That's the way God's team works. That he can bring a bunch of people that outside of the context of Christ are enemies. They're at each other's throats because there's so many things we disagree on and we divide over. But when we have Christ in common, man, everything else comes under that. So you're no longer my enemy, you're my brother. And so even though every letter in the alphabet we may disagree on, but A is Christ above all else, and we agree on that, we can be brothers, we can be in fellowship. We can celebrate each other's victories and we can support each other. That doesn't mean these guys got along all the time. That doesn't mean you're going to get along with everybody in here. In fact, you probably have people in here or in other churches in the area that you can think of that you're like, oh man, we are like Matthew and Simon. We just, we're better in different places. And there are times that that's what's best. So you can both, both serve the Lord. That's Paul and Barnabas dividing ways because they couldn't agree over John Mark, but they both go and serve the Lord. And there are other times that God says, no, I'm going to trump that disagreement and I'm going to unify you guys by the Spirit and the bond of peace. So when the world looks at you guys, they're like, those two getting along, those two loving each other, those two serving together, that doesn't make sense. That shouldn't work. On paper, it can't happen. But the power of God can change hearts and renew minds. And take enemies and make them friends. We're given Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Now, Judas, the son of James, is also referred to as Thaddeus and Labius. And it's not crazy to understand why his name might have been changed. 
with the knowledge that we have another Judas in his company that is known as the traitor of Jesus. The same reason we didn't dedicate baby Judas today, and we probably never will, it's not a name that typically people want to name their children, because you don't want to be linked to Judas Iscariot. The betrayer, the one that took his own life after giving over Jesus to make some money. But something worth noting about this Judas Iscariot is that the disciples didn't expect him to be the one that would betray Jesus. Now, in hindsight, they recognize he's the traitor. He's the one that does it. But even in a moment when Jesus say, it's one of you, you don't see them all going, we all know, it's Judas. We knew it from the beginning. They're all going, is it me? Is it, is it me? Is it him? Is it? Even to the very end, when Jesus is having a meal with them, they didn't know who it was that was going to betray him. Realize this, even in the church today, that there will be those that walk away from Jesus that have been walking with him a long time that you would never expect would be the one to turn away from him. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Don't let your faith be anchored in another person. People will fail you. And I don't care how much of a leader or an influencer they are, I don't care how long they've been following God, when you place your hope and your faith in a man, men will fail you. But what's interesting is that you've got Judas along with another 11, and you've got one man that will be a traitor to Jesus, take his own life, and 11 that will die for Jesus and follow him to the bitter end. And what's different? Well, it's not proximity because Judas walked with Jesus for years. He served Jesus for years. He was a part of the followers of Jesus for years. So it's not just that you're close to where God is. You can come to church your whole life and that doesn't make you a follower of Christ. And it's not because you read enough of the Bible or you prayed enough times because we're even given scripture where people say, I did a bunch of things in your name, Jesus. I cast out demons in your name. I went and proclaimed your name to people. And he's like, well, I never knew you. You may have been a parrot that was repeating what you had heard, but you certainly weren't an ambassador. You weren't an apostle. You weren't somebody called to God in relationship with him that then goes out with his message. Judas was so close. He walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus working. He was surrounded by followers of Jesus that would follow him to the bitter end, and he missed it. Don't assume just because you're really close to Jesus in this place or because you're surrounded by Christians. Hey, I grew up in a Christian home, so it's like default, right? No. You can be so close and miss it. Because at the end of the day, you're going to stand before him and you don't get to bring in all your friends and get brought in because most of you followed me, you can all come in. You're going to give an account for your own life before Jesus. And you could be in the church your whole life and you could have Christian friends your whole life and you could know the Bible from cover to cover. But if you don't know Jesus, and more importantly, if Jesus doesn't know you, there's no hope in that. 
but what was the reputation that these men would get? We've seen their flaws this morning. We could question why Jesus would call these 12 this morning, but what would their reputation go down in history for? It wasn't as the most improved. It wasn't as a group that did pretty well with what they were working with. Acts 17, verses 6 and 7. There's a group that came, a mob, to stop the disciples. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, listen to this, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king. What's the reputation these twelve are given? These men are turning the world upside down. Twelve men. We could actually argue eleven men. Judas isn't a part of them anymore. But eleven men, filled with flaws, called by Jesus, are given a reputation that what did they do when Jesus left They turned the world upside down in the best way possible because his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And what is their message? It's not that we submit to Caesar. It's that Jesus is king. So they're still being apostles. They're still being ambassadors, and they're coming representing their king and saying, no, we've got a new authority. We've got a new message And it's going to turn this place upside down. You're not ready for it. It's not what you're thinking. It doesn't look the way you'd expect it to. But it brings hope and it brings life and transformation. And we are living testimonies of it. And I look around this room and I see a whole lot more than 11 people. And I think about what they had against them and their limitations. They didn't have cars. They didn't have technology. They didn't have this. They turned the world upside down. What could a room this size, with the resources we've been given, do if we were as submitted and committed as the disciples to being ambassadors for Jesus? I'll tell you what, we could turn the world upside down. If you've got the Spirit of God living inside of you, if you are sealed by His Spirit and empowered by His Holy Spirit, God can use you to turn the world upside down. And you may go down in in history as the person that we don't know anything about except for your name and your daddy's name, but God can use you to turn the world upside down. And maybe you'll go down in history as the one that doubted or the one that ran away and scared when times were tough, but you continue to learn from your mistakes and you follow after Jesus and you will be a part of turning the world upside down for Jesus. I don't know what apostle you are. We tend to align ourselves with the more favorable ones. But the reality is every one of us in here is on an equal playing field. We are flawed and yet we are called. And we have weaknesses, but he has given us gifts. And by the grace of God, we are what we are. How are you being used by him today? Well, the worship team's going to come back up this morning. And as we close this morning, I hope that what is ringing out loud and clear for you today 
is that there is room for you no matter who you are. That there is room for you here. These were nobodies called by a somebody to tell everybody the gospel. But they didn't stay strangers to the Messiah. They went from converts to disciples to apostles. From people who were far from God under the power of darkness to people who had become friends of God and walk in light. You know, there's a book that captures the attention of every pastor when they read the title. It's called Why Churches Die. He's probably like a Thomas by the title. But you read it, it immediately catches your attention. And when you read in his book some of the reasons why he says churches die. Number one, he said, is when converts don't become disciples. And number two, when disciples don't become apostles. There should be a constant growth and transformation taking place in your life, no matter where you are in that spectrum. Maybe today is day one, and you would not even call yourself a convert. You would not even call yourself a Christian. Today is just someone who's coming and checking it out. We welcome that. We're glad you're here. And it's a great place to start. Maybe for others, you're somewhere else along that journey of faith, that race of faith. Maybe you are a convert. You're a new Christian. You just gave your life to Christ. Or you're a disciple and you're somebody who's maturing in your faith and growing in your understanding of God and following after Jesus every day. Or maybe you would place yourself in the camp of an apostle, someone who has matured in the faith and is not just growing and following Christ, but is going out actively and seeking to bring that message to a world that needs to hear it. We all are in a process of growth. The Bible calls it sanctification, of being set apart a little more each and every day for Christ. This morning, my challenge for you is is to allow the Spirit to reveal to you where are you in that process and what are you doing to move forward. Every one of us has room for growth. There's nobody that's arrived and there, no, there is nobody here or that will ever live that is too late to start. But I want to be a part of a church that is thriving. A church that is continuing to be brought more to life and not a church that is dying. You know, last week we saw a little bit of that life in this room when people who had no plans of getting baptized felt a tug from the Lord and responded in boldness and said, heck, I'm in jeans and a sweatshirt. It doesn't matter. I'm getting in the water. I need to respond to what Jesus is doing. Man, would we be a church that has that same boldness this morning Say, it doesn't matter where I'm at and what I was planning for, God, I want to respond to your spirit this morning. And just as boldly, I want to go and do what you're calling me to do. And maybe that's getting connected with someone more mature in the faith so they can mentor you. Maybe that's jumping into a home group and connecting with a community of people that you can do life with. Maybe that's jumping into a men's and women's Bible study and growing in your understanding of the word. Maybe that's just showing up next Sunday as we continue to look at Jesus' life and his message for his people, maybe that's today coming and responding for the first time and giving your life to Jesus. We're going to have people available for prayer. 
There'll be people at the front of the room up here that would love to pray with you. There's going to be people up above in the balcony in the back ready and willing to pray with you. Fellow followers of Christ, flawed and yet called. I want to see this place unified as a body being used for the gospel of Jesus. If you're bored as a Christian today, you're doing it all wrong. Look at the life of the disciples and it will tell you that this is an exciting life that constantly involves ups and downs and adventures and victories and failures alike. But it's anything from boring. Are you willing to follow Jesus wherever he would call you today in whatever he would call you to do? And when you fail, get back up and continue to follow the one who has called you, knowing full well what it would entail. Let's pray this morning as we close. God, we thank you for this reminder in Scripture this morning. Lord, that we can look at 12 men that we see as flawed, as weak, as useless in such a big mission. And yet you'd look at them and see the 12 that you would call and you would use to be a part of your incredible plan. Men that would turn the world upside down. Not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. And Lord, it gives us a little more hope and faith today. That if you could call those 12, surely you could call us even with all our flaws and failures. You could call us even with our fears and our weaknesses and you could use us turn this world upside down for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would increase a desire in the heart of each and every person here to be a part of that plan. That you would show them where they're at in that journey and how they can grow and move forward. That you would show them what it looks like to turn the world upside down for you first in their own life and then in their homes with their families and in the communities and schools and workplaces around them. God, we don't want this to stay here. We want to be used by you outside these doors, in our communities, in this world for your glory. Lord, would you equip us this morning? Where some still have a list of reasons why they can't be used, would you wipe that away? and remind them there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And would you send us out of here this morning, bold, with faith, believing you can do it again. In your name, Jesus, we pray, and all God's people said, amen.